This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here, go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game, and I'm coming to you with a nasty head cold post Key West from Producers in Paradise. Everybody had a great time. I had a good time, but I let my gas tank get too empty. But I was not going to let that keep me in bed today because we got a dynamic guest that I think our industry needs to hear from, and that's Chris Walker, the CEO of Refine Labs. And Chris is somebody that, honestly, I stumbled across on LinkedIn and just happened to go down a rabbit hole on dark social and was captivated by it, which took me down about 15 other rabbit holes. And so I've been down Chris Walker rabbit holes ever since, man. So I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, especially since I reached out to you cold. I don't really do much of that anymore. So I had a little reluctance. I wasn't sure how busy you are. So I appreciate you taking time out of the day to chat with us, man. Yeah, I love being here. And I also love uh, sort of stretching the creativity here, right? We're in a niche industry. It's very traditional. I spent some of my time in manufacturing and medical device early in my career. I think there's a lot of parallels to insurance and risk from that standpoint, just like how they think about marketing and sales overall. So yeah, looking forward to sort of diving into these specific areas. So you sort of hinted a little bit, you were in medical devices and sales. How did you get to Refine Labs? What was that evolution like? Yeah, so I actually I was actually part of the marketing team there. Although I worked did a lot of field marketing and worked with the sales team quite a bit and drove a lot of revenue as a marketer. And after that stint, I fig- I looked back and realized, hey, like I had a bunch of freedom at this company. I had two years. They didn't have high expectations for marketing. They didn't have any MQL target, and I was allowed to build the marketing engine the way that I thought made sense. Two years later, the company was going for an IPO, highly successful. The marketing engine was working. And I looked out in the world and said, wow, Like when I started with a blank slate and didn't look at what everyone else was doing, I built something way different than what a normal company would do. And I recognized that what I I had built was very unique. And so um, I took those insights and decided to start helping companies at scale rather than as an employee, as building a company that helps a lot of companies at once. I think that's pretty cool, man, because I like... I think one of the reasons I'm so drawn to marketing is because you can do something that you're passionate about, that displays your creativity, shows what makes you different, but you can do that under the under the 
blanket of helping other people grow their business. I mean, that's, yes, you can make money doing it, but when you see the fruits of your labor that are actually delivering results, that's a really cool feeling to me. I mean, at least it is in my world. Yeah. And it's, it's just using the tools available and the way that human beings get information today using the exact same thing when you went to the PTA meeting and you would go and knock on doors and you would have a networking, you would go to networking dinners and you would be the speaker or you would try and get at this awards conference. You're doing all these things that you would do in person, one-to-one, and now taking that in a way that you can do it every day digitally, get a same or better touch point with customers. And I think it's a huge opportunity. I've proven it for my for myself and my business. We help a lot of companies prove it. You've seen success stories all over the place. We as consumers, as you look at your individual self as a consumer, you use the tools. And so it's crazy. It's crazy when I hear people say like, I have a 40 year old tell me that their customers aren't on TikTok when they use it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I actually had that happen to me. I was speaking at an event in Missouri and we were talking something about Google ads or whatever. And the guy said, that doesn't work. We, people in the country don't use Google. And I said, what? He said, people in the country don't really use Google. And I said, that's interesting. So I kept on with my presentation and, and went for about 10 more minutes. And then out of nowhere, I said, hey, real quick, man, can you tell me how far we are from the restaurant tonight? I want to make sure I wrap up on time. He immediately goes to Google, looks, gets the distance. And I said, I rest my case. People in the country use Google. Now let's go on with the rest of the presentation. But you know, it's interesting because I think that there's a lot of that in our industry specifically, because there, I mean, Abe, you can speak to this. You were definitely, I'm 50 years old this year. So I'm I'm one of these guys that's caught in between. And I think it's really a valuable place for me to be because when I went to college, we had no internet, you know, it was getting developed. We were just starting to get floppies and CD-ROMs in the mail from AOL and Netscape and Prodigy. And then email became a more mainstream thing. So I think one of the benefits that I have from a visualization standpoint is I've watched how all of this stuff has been built and grown. So it makes it easier for me to recognize trends that I think are going to take off, you know, moving forward. But I'm interested in your input, Abe. I mean, you're half my age. Yeah, I've been kind of surprised to see how universal these platforms are. To me, it's less about the platform and more about what's actually getting put out there. And you see it. You know, depending, I, I know people that are in their 60s and 70s that are on TikTok. It's more about the content itself that, that seems to resonate with people. Yeah, I've always said, Chris, you know, if you're consistent in putting out good content, your audience will always find you regardless of what platform you're on. I mean, that's why you have to, in my opinion, and certainly you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I, that's why I feel like you need to figure out how to tailor your content for each one of the platforms. I'm I'm relatively active on LinkedIn more than anywhere else, I would say. But the content I put on LinkedIn is not the same content that I put on Facebook. So the people who follow me on LinkedIn get a lot more professional, David, whereas the people who follow me on Facebook get more family and, and all of that stuff. And I've always said to be successful in this endeavor, you have to have professional credibility and you have to have social credibility. And I think that, you know, I've done a fairly decent job of building that. And the reason I say that is because when I go anywhere, like this weekend, man, we had 130 people at our conference in Key West, and I probably had never met 60 of them in person before. But yet they come to the conference, they spend a lot of money to get there. And it's like we've known each other our entire lives because we follow each other through this journey digitally that we didn't have the ability to do before. 
it's true that you can put content on any platform, but it's undeniable that each platform has a moment in time where there's significantly more upside than any other place on the internet. And so if you can think back to me starting my company in 2019, I basically tested three things. I wrote blogs for SEO. I posted content on Instagram and I posted content on LinkedIn. And within 60 days, it was obvious that I'm going to stop writing blogs. I'm going to stop posting on Instagram and I'm going to start posting on LinkedIn twice a day, every day. Um, and so, and there's a recognition here that if you're able to identify that land grab, so to speak, you're able to bear a lot of the, there's a lot of people that have a million followers on Instagram, but all of the following was built between 2015 and 2017 when people weren't using Instagram in the same way, or they've transitioned now to reels. They Instagram launched a new feature like stories or reels, and they're able to take advantage of a platform shift. And so I think there, I think there is a, a value in being selective between the audience, the platform, and then the content type and medium that you're putting in. If you can find a match on that, I found a match on video video content, short form video content on LinkedIn in late 2019. And I've continued to use that as the main driver of my company. We've expanded now. So now we're active on about five platforms on a weekly or daily basis. But being if I had done the exact same thing and instead of going all in on LinkedIn, I had gone all in on writing blogs, there's no way my company would be this big. There's no way you would have noticed me and invited me to your podcast. There's no way super talented people want to join my company. There's no way the biggest company or companies in the world want to be my customer. And so there, I think I, I want to enunciate that point. There is a there, and I was talking about it in 2019. I was telling people, hey, there's it was August 9th, 2019, where I fully committed to that platform 100 percent And a lot of people, quote unquote, saw the opportunity. There's very few people that really executed and capitalized in the same way that I did. And so being able to to recognize that opportunity and then take advantage of it, I think is a is a is a key thing that can drive accelerated success. So why do you think that you were you've been so successful on LinkedIn? Granted, you've got your content tailored for it. You've been consistent, but you know, the biggest thing that we always hear or I hear, Abe, I'd be interested in your two cents on this too is you know, nobody wants to go to LinkedIn anymore because there's too much spam on the direct messages and everything else where my perspective is if you're really good, you're going to stand out even more when you've got a bunch of people doing a crappy job. So if you are genuine, sincere, authentic with your content and consistent in getting it out, I think you're going to bypass all the stuff that's turning people off. And I think LinkedIn is a platform. I have no statistics to back this up. So I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. But the feel of it is it has way more velocity than it did, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. I feel like sure. enough people stayed committed. You know, it is, there's a lot, there's, there's some dumpster fires out there, but you know, I think by and large, it's it's serving its purpose at this point. Yeah, I mean, how I, how I was able to recognize and capitalize on LinkedIn is that I, I started doing Facebook organic for a B2B company in 2015. I started running B2B Facebook ads, account-based marketing on Facebook in 2016. I started expanding that to Instagram and YouTube in 2017 and 18. And so by spending a lot of time, I've seen the platform sort of life cycles and somewhere around 2017 maybe maybe 2018 linkedin transitioned from a recruiting tool and a resume platform to a content platform that does recruiting and resumes 
And that shift that they made was incredibly smart as a, as a company and being able to see that, hey, now LinkedIn is actually acting like a social network, just like Facebook and Instagram had when I was able to take advantage of those you know, three to five years ago. Now I'm going to be able to take advantage of that now. What it comes down to in, in social, there's a couple of key things. For The first part is in your mindset. I think a lot of people create content to uh, promote themselves or their company or to do things that aren't in the best interest of the people that are using it. That's fine when you're writing for a search engine, when someone says, how do I compare pricing between these two vendors and you serve them up the content that you want, that they asked for. But in social, nobody's asking for the content. So you have to create that they stop and and actually engage with and listen to. So there's a lot of people that haven't made the transition from content marketing for search engines to content marketing for dark social, which I think is a huge part of it. Another part of it is a lot of people look at social as a nice to have. And I look at it as the core driver to growth in my company. So there's a there's an executive level mindset where I, we consult with large financial services companies and things like that. And they're trying to figure out how to get their sales team to post on LinkedIn a couple of times a day. But their executive team doesn't do it. Their VPs don't do it. And they expect that their you know individual contributor sales reps are going to be the ones to go and pave the way on LinkedIn. And it, it, you need executive level commitment. And it has to be core to the strategy. Most companies are going to spend probably 1% of, of their go-to-market budget or less on social media content. So it just it just shows you that it's not a core priority for the business, and it's going to get treated like that when, when executives look at it that way and budget that way for it. There's some things about... Uh, you mentioned you know there's some dumpster fires. There's some things about LinkedIn that I think make it incredibly vulnerable as a platform to... And I think what will come out, and you're already starting to see this happen, is that people will... Well, they'll probably continue to post on LinkedIn because there's so much awareness and so much ROI to it, but they're going to be mostly engaging in niche social networks or communities that are far more specific, that have a much higher bar for the quality of the content and the quality of the people in that thing. What's going on on LinkedIn right now, because they haven't made the transition to prioritize video content first over written content, which is what every other social network in the world has done, but LinkedIn hasn't. Now you got AI in the mix. You got people that have no relevant experience. They um, don't really know what they're talking about. They look at what other people post. Then they go to AI. Then they create a written text post. The LinkedIn algorithm prioritizes it like they're an expert. And then it pushes out a lot of content that is potentially not relevant, not smart, and it could misguide people. So I think as the as AI continues to grow and content availability, free content availability goes up, people's bar for the content that they believe, consume, and execute against needs to go way up, or you're going to potentially be taking a lot of bad advice. So that's one thing on LinkedIn, how the algorithm continues to prioritize text, I think is a huge miss as a platform, and they should be moving to video first, and they should have I've been talking about this since 2020, because my content was getting plagiarized. That's why I started doing video. Is because I, I would post something one day written. I would wake up the next day and someone in the UK would literally copy and paste and post my post the next day. And I said, this is, this is it. I'm going to, you can't, you can copy my text. You're not going to copy my video. That's why I moved to video in 2020. Another thing that makes LinkedIn, I think, vulnerable, and now we're getting to like business consulting for LinkedIn, but we'll get back to the main show in a second, is that LinkedIn has to play both sides of the equation. They make all of their revenue from businesses who want to sell stuff to the users. 
And then they also need to accommodate for what the user wants. So they're trying to play, they're trying to play from both sides here, but the use, the, all the users are free for the most part, unless you buy sales navigator or some of their products, most of the users are free. When you are a free user, you are the product. Yep. So, so uh, LinkedIn is selling, trying to sell advertising against that. They make money when people send you spam DMs. So people will buy in-mail credits and send spam automated DMs and LinkedIn makes money when they do that. And so there's just a, there's a misalignment between what the user needs and the business model of LinkedIn that I think makes it uh, vulnerable as well. Um, LinkedIn's doing a bunch of awesome shit. Um, their ad product is the best out there. They were the first to create a place where professionals can go and congregate. And I've been able to bear a lot of fruit from that move. So there's a lot that I'm grateful for of LinkedIn, but I'm really pushing them to evolve, make strong evolutions uh, as a social network to continue to make it as a, as a user of LinkedIn, I find myself not using the product as much anymore. I'm committed to posting to it, but I scroll through the feed and I'm like, why am I here? Um, and so I think there, I think a lot of people are probably feeling that right now. And there's, they're going to have to do something or they're going to start losing user attention. Yeah, I think so too. Abe, I mean, you and I are completely different in our approach. What have you seen that's been working for you well? Because I feel like you do a lot of long form posts on LinkedIn and it's not as much video. Yeah, I have a I have a really specific niche within commercial insurance and people within that really specific niche really resonate with the the long form text post that I that I create. And I've been you know kind of experimenting with turning those into videos or vice versa, but it seems like long form text tends to work best for my audience. Yeah, my I mean, uh, if you look at engagement metrics, long form text is what's prioritized in the algorithm. So for sure, I look at it a little bit differently, which is like, do more people know me? Are more people going to recognize me on the street? Are more people going to do business with my company? And when you look at it at that, instead of how many likes did I get, I find and I still write a long form post. So all my posts have long form text, but it also includes a you know 60 second to 10 minute video that goes with it. And the way, just a little bit of consulting for you, the way the way to get there is not to try and convert the written into a text or the text post into a video. It's to do the opposite. It's to make the video and then write the text around it. And so that would be, that was the move that I made in 2019. It's paid a lot of dividends for me, but you, I went from in 2019 getting 200 likes on a, te- a short text post that was fluffy to getting you know 50 to 100 likes on a video so your quote unquote engagement is going to go down by 50% but the amount of people that sent me DMs invited me to their podcast became my customer all went up so there's a interesting push and pull between like the traditional social media metrics and business results that I'm trying to help educate people on because I've just yeah and and when you have the video you just get a lot more flexibility downstream you can make that directly into a podcast a youtube video video for social media a video for your website you could transcribe it and make it seo optimized so with the video i think you just have a lot more flexibility for distribution and this brings up uh, i think you posted was was i think it was this week about the, the goal in marketing is to make sales easier in B2B and, marketing, for sure. In B2B marketing. In most B2C, the goal of marketing is to sell stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've seen that in B2B because it, it really just came to life for me because I had heard that for a while. But this week I was on a call with somebody and he was incredibly excited to work with us. And he had been talking about all of those things that he had seen us post. 
but had never ever interacted with us. Um, and it made the sale process so easy. How do you, how have you seen with the companies that you're working with changing that mindset from maybe like the traditional 20 teens, lead gen, MQL type uh, marketing to, to now kind of w- what you're seeing in today's environment with obviously the, the, the buzzwords like dark social and, and, uh, and, and things that you're seeing right now? Yeah, the, the core thing to acknowledge as like a fundamental is to acknowledge that you have you have a target market. And inside that target market, you can break it into two categories, the people that are actively looking to buy that category or thing and the people that aren't. In most categories, the people that are actually actively buying stuff is going to be somewhere between 1% and 3% of the entire market, which leaves 97 to 99% of the market that aren't actively buying. When you run a traditional like marketing lead gen playbook that a lot of the companies that are listening to this podcast probably still run, the only way to achieve the scale is to go and get all the people that are not in market, which then forces your sales team to try and sell to people that don't want to buy right now, which makes sales really fucking hard in today's day and age. Um, it just make, it makes it really hard um, because buyers have so much available information. They want to do most of it on their own. If they're not interested in buying, why do they want to take a waste their time taking a 30-minute call with your sales team or trying to pick up a, a cold call or answer an email? They're going to just ignore it and move on. And so the two things that we need to focus on in marketing to make sales easier is number one, we need to find who the one to 3% are that are buying right this second and get them in front of our sales team in a meeting. So that's one big thing, right? Um, Google SEO, some companies are getting really creative with like account level intent data, mostly in software, but I see that moving to other industries, affiliates type of thing. I think affiliates are pretty big in the insurance industry, so it's not ideal, but paying a VIG for to get people that are actively buying can be a good deal. Just watch out because if you build your whole business on that, over time, you're going to be in real trouble. You know, So you got that type of stuff to find people that are actively buying and then get them in a meeting with your sales team to try and close them because they're looking to buy what you sell. Then we need to figure out for the other 97 to 99% that aren't buying... What are the things that we're going to do to help educate them so at some point they consider buying? Um, and that's really the, I think, the core miss in in most marketing strategies is how to in is looking at these as two separate groups and then looking at a majority of the market that isn't actively buying and marketing in a different way that isn't performance marketing, lead generation, cold calling, and using a new strategy and structure that involves dark social content that educates people at scale in a way that they want asynchronously in their own time in the native platforms that they already use. And then being able to, over time, have them consider your company or your category because of the work that you did. And it's a really interesting thing. When, when you educate a market or even down to one person about something, and then they decide, hey, I really want to buy insurance... Susie's content taught me all about insurance. Who's the first person that she's going to call when she needs insurance? She's going to call Susie or Susie's company and and be the first to consider. That doesn't mean that you're going to win the deal. If your product sucks, if your pricing isn't there, if it's more competitive, it doesn't mean you're going to win every deal, but you you have a leg up as opposed to being the third company that that they're considering that they just found on Google when they decided they wanted insurance. So I'll tell you something. This has been an interesting thing that I've gone through over the course of the last year because the group that I just had the conference for down in Key West is an online ecosystem that I built to train 
middle market producers how to sell more effectively, but we built a social network component into it. So essentially it's like an whole online ecosystem that's there. And I do post a lot of stuff that helps people who are technically my peers or competition, you know, quick tips, tricks, whatever to help them in their sales approach. And probably six or seven months ago, I started getting two or three direct messages a month from CEOs and CFOs of who would be my end client that just said, hey, we're watching the stuff you put out. It's good. We're not getting that from our existing agent right now. And we want that. Do you write in our state or do you have somebody who you teach to do things the way you do that writes in our state? We would love an introduction because we don't we're not getting what we want to get. And it seems like you've got it. And it, that just blows my mind because the content was never developed for them. It was developed for producers to consume and then take that soundbite and go out and implement it and actually move the ball down the field a little bit. But it goes back to why I said the audience always ends up finding you in some way, shape or form if you remain consistent, because that's actually my my real audience for you know my non-side hustle job. And the acknowledgement is that most people don't have a go-to insurance company or agent. Yeah. They don't, right? I'm in, I'm in the process of reevaluating. Someone else on my team is doing it, but we're doing it. We're reevaluating all our business insurance. The last time we bought business insurance, we were 10 people. So if somebody was out there, an insurance company, educating, making content for CEOs of here are all the things you got to look out for once you cross over to eight figures, once you exceed 100 employees, whatever the milestones are, here are the new things you have to consider. And they showed me that, then they would be the first person that I consider. Instead, we're just using a broker to go and price shop everything. And so like... Uh, yeah, that gets dangerous. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole with you, but that does get dangerous because you're captive to that one person to go out and hope that they know what they're doing and that they, they can find the right carriers with the right endorsements and are not missing exclusions and things. I mean, it's a complicated thing. And, you know, that's one of the things our industry struggles with by and large, more on the business to consumer side than the B2B side, but they're trying to get into B2B and haven't figured it out yet. Yep. And that's, you know, that's buying insurance online, quote, bind issue, get it done. But you leave that end user, you leave that client, potentially with massive exposure that they have no idea about because they didn't go sit 200 hours to take an insurance licensing exam. They don't have professional designations that dive into different coverages and policy meet and all of that. It's just the inability to delay gratification. We decided we got our renewal. It's a little too high. I'm going to go do this right now. And Progressive and Geico are in your face on TV all the time. And that's where they go. I mean, we don't even get a phone call till they've already been to Progressive or Geico, which is interesting to me because all the studies that I've read say that the people in the millennial generation and the generation beyond them are really more interested in having a professional advisor because they don't know. And they they readily admit that. I think it's probably my generation that's the one that's more culpable here because we don't want to admit what we don't know. And we think we have it all figured out. And in reality, we don't. It's lack of awareness. Nobody knows you. Yeah, like that's what it is. If more if if more people knew and trust trusted you and knew what you did, they would consider like I don't want to be disrespectful here, but insurance is largely a commodity at this point. No, dude, listen, you're uh, preaching to the choir. I will tell you right now, insurance <laughs> is the commoditized shuffling of paperwork. And when I'm in doing a deal, we're focusing on total cost of risk. We're talking about 
claims inside of deductible and self-retention layers that are out of pocket or a business decided they're just going to go ahead and pay for that fender bender and not put it on their insurance because they think they're controlling rates. Certainly they do buy insurance for certain things, but at the end of the day, it's do you have a return to work program for workers comp to reduce the cost of injuries, which are affecting your experience modification factor and subsequently driving up rates? Sounds really technical, right? That's not something that the average consumer is going to really be able to understand. And you do have to get educational information out like that. But when I'm at the closing table, the insurance piece is, is represented as the funding mechanism for people to use cash they're already spending on a product to buy my value proposition which is all of the stuff they need to control cost, but they're not going to go out and buy one off. So the tech stack that I have in my agency is extremely abnormal for an agency my size. We do about $4 million a year in revenue. That's a that's a good-sized agency to a lot, but it's not huge by any stretch. The average agency in the country out of the 40,000 or so that are out there are a half a million or less in revenue, just to give you some perspective. It's, you oh, know, it's the people... Yeah. yeah, it's the people that we used to go into... Um, with our parents to have them do the annual review of insurance and you'd sit in the lobby while the receptionist is smoking a cigarette. Like, I mean, that's, that's what I grew up with, but you know, by and large, it's pretty uncommon if you're not a national player to go in with a suite of software products for claims management, certificate tracking, and all of the other things that we do and give that away as part of the value proposition, knowing that we've been able to, put that stuff in place in a way that is affordable and scalable. And that's how we've gotten to 4 million. I mean, we, we started seven years ago, this July 1st. And I mean, the, the agency started in the dining room of my home that we converted to an office. And after 18 months moved in here where we're at now, but you know, it's been, it's been a grind, man. And, and the content creation piece and just the consistency and making sure that it's, it's good information is is a grind in and of itself. I come from the grocery industry. I ran grocery stores for 10 years before I got into insurance when I was 30 years old. So I think one of the reasons I'm captivated by the dark social conversation is we lived in dark social. Like that's what it was. It was, hey, you know, the conversation at the kid's birthday party or you're sitting in the bleachers at Little League and people are like, man, did you go into that store? That place was filthy. Well, we just lost six people that were within earshot of hearing that had no way of measuring it. And I think it's it's kind of um, naive to think that that type of behavior went away just because we have social now. It's probably more prevalent it, it, than it, ever. It has massive scale. Now, instead of just at the Little League game where four people hear about how your grocery store sucks, now someone's going to post that on Facebook and the whole town's going to know. Right, exactly. It's crazy. And people use that as a weapon. Social has been weaponized by pissed off consumers to a certain degree. That's you don't see it. Channel. Yeah, for sure. Mainly Twitter, but it happens in other places too. I want to get back on the affiliate thing for a minute because I think it's super important and there's a lot of parallels here. Um, so affiliate like insurance, you're paying per lead, whether that's in B2C or a B2B move, right? So someone- Just for your edification, I own a portfolio of e-commerce sites that's all affiliate-based revenue. So I know affiliate revenue streams pretty well. Yeah, and so by my like, own standards, Chris, probably not by yours, but by my own, yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself. You you can have it in insurance. They have it in real estate, right? Like Zillow goes and buy the, the Google ad, gets you the lead, then sells you back the lead for two hundred bucks, and you're not. They give it to everybody, not just you. Um, you have it in medical device and manufacturing companies in a distrib like exclusive distribution model that a lot of companies use where you don't control the experience to the end consumer, you don't control, you're not directly in contact with the end consumer. 
So you're vulnerable to whoever's sitting in the middle being the middleman between you and the customer. So when like when demand's gone down and the companies that were had this like CAC machine going for uh for Google ads, and all of a sudden demand goes down in the category, Google ad click prices stay the same or go up. And all of a sudden the math doesn't work anymore where they used to be paying $99 for a meeting and now they're paying $350 and the whole thing breaks. And so if you if you're overly invested in an affiliate channel where a lot of your revenue comes from and you're not focused on a direct channel directly to the customer to get business directly to you, um, over time, those affiliate prices never almost never go down. It's going to keep going up. There's going to be more competition. It's going to put more pressure on your margins. It's going to put more pressure on a lot of areas of the business. So um, yeah, like in 2014, I worked for a, a manufacturing company. And we sold through dis exclusive distribution in the US for certain products. And we OEM'd other products and things like that. And I'm looking at the stuff and it's like, these, these people are literally, they're not out, out there selling our product. They're taking orders from people that if they could, the people could buy it online, they would just buy it online directly from us. And we're giving them 40 points to sit in the middle and do nothing. And that's whether it's distribution, being over-invested in distribution or affiliates, there's there's a lot of parallels here to basically not being able to control your own destiny. And in it's weird because in the as people grew up in business in the in the two in the year two thousands that that decade, having distribution was the only option. You didn't have you weren't going to buy TV and radio commercials and build a full scale direct sell selling team. Now. You have inside sales. Everything's happening remotely. There's a lot of e-com. Uh, social exists. You can get to consumers for very inexpensively or free in some places. And just the whole dynamics have changed. So a lot of the sort of business best practices to, to have distribution and things like that, I think, are starting to really go out the window. And almost everyone should be primary direct-to-consumer. Yeah, I think that one of the things that changed the landscape of the affiliate marketing is the rise of, you know, and I don't want this to sound wrong, so it's not a sexist remark, it's a title, but the mommy blogger, right? The mommy bloggers got out and found out that they could go share deals where they're going to get a percentage or they're going to get a cost per acquisition. Uh, they learned about AdSense and how they could have display advertising and the sidebar and the header and all of that stuff and literally created almost like a personal shopper site for yep. people where they're going out finding the deal and they're just getting a, a death by a thousand cuts when they sell stuff. And I mean, I can even remember, man, back in the old days, and this goes back, one of the reasons why we have the e-commerce piece is because of my experience in grocery and teaching people how to save money on groceries, take that cash that they save, deploy it over to their debt load and live a debt-free lifestyle. And that's how I got people into my ecosystem. I just grinded, man. I did uh, 20 you know, webinars for an hour an hour a piece, four hours a night. So I hit every time zone and I did that for six or eight months, but we were getting two cents for every coupon. Somebody prints off the website. That that number adds up in a hurry, man. We would go to Thompson Cigars. I don't even know how they made money. They can't be making money at this point. It's got to be a huge loss leader, but you would get like a welcome kit with five cigars, a travel humidor, a lighter and a cigar cutter. And you'd buy it for $19.99, but my cost per acquisition or my commission per acquisition was 20 bucks. So, you know, they're just trying to get them into the mail order list and push things out in their mail order catalog and everything. But that was wild. Like 15 years ago, man, everybody and their brother was starting a blog and they were all making decent coin, man. I, I, I watched I watched ladies, by all practical purposes, very intelligent women that probably 
made a decision not to have a career so they could stay home and raise their kids, figure out a way to do both. And they grew multi-million dollar empires, man. That lady, um, the crazy coupon lady from out West, multi-million dollars, man. It's amazing. She had her money. Her branding was on point, just printing cash. Mm-hmm. And then it died, right? It died because the papers stopped putting as much as many coupons in there. The marketing company or the marketing uh, departments and the marketing firms realized we're not really getting much data on the end user. Let's go to loyalty cards. Let's go to apps so we can at least capture some of that because that's worth something to us. That's, you know, Catalina marketing. That's why the, if you buy Tide, they have a coupon for all that spits out when you're at the, at the store. I mean, I'm, you know, all this stuff, right? But I just think that that was a major block of time for about three to five years where gold business- rush. Yeah, it was. You you literally couldn't miss, man. It was like the yeah, stock market in the late yeah. two, late late nineties. Reselling stuff on Amazon, whether it's drop shipping or actually holding the inventory, was a huge opportunity. I took advantage of that quite a bit in the 2012 to 2015, 16 time frame. There are moments in time where there's basically just uh, there's an arbitrage. There's something out there where people are willing to pay a lot for something that is not very expensive and there's not a lot of barriers to entry to create. And there's a lot of people that can take advantage of that. You could argue, I see people could argue that crypto's in there too. I'm not a big crypto guy, but there's there's moments in time where people can make a lot of money doing something and the window closes. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, um, I'll never forget, man. I, I found a, a purse that was made out of a rubber chicken on Amazon and I did a post about it. And, you know, when you, you probably know this, but when, when somebody goes to Amazon, you had, I don't know what it is today. Cause I'm not actively involved in it, but it was, you had the cookie for 72 hours. So I'd have 50,000 people click on my post to go look at the purse of a rubber chicken, but I'm selling DSLR cameras and all kinds of other stuff around Christmas time, just making bank for literally just driving people to a website, capturing the cookie and then letting them shop. And by the way, some of these women are freaks, man. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there because we could see what they bought and, you know, not, not a tied to a name, but it, it, I mean, we made money selling a lot of stuff we otherwise wouldn't have sold. And, you know, when you have aggregators like Commission Junction and it was LinkShare at the time, and, and there were, you know, quite a few that we still have contracts with, there's literally nothing that I wanted to buy on the internet that I couldn't get paid a commission to, to buy or sell to somebody else. I know we're kind of, we might be coming up, maybe you have a roadmap. If not, I uh, would love to sort of answer a couple of questions you think would be most valuable for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I took on the affiliate sort of tracks. I wanted to get that thing in, but we can get back to what people really want to hear, I think. Yeah, I, I think maybe just talking a little bit about dark social and how you approach it. You know, it, it's interesting to me. I'm We have a, a custom build out a HubSpot in my agency. That's what I run the agency off of um, as a CRM. And so we do lead scoring. We get a lot of data that comes back to us that tells us people are consuming our content, where they're consuming it, how long, all of that. But you're not going to get that with with dark social. You're, you know, so talk a little bit about that. Maybe even just explain what dark social is for the audience, because I don't even know that we've defined it yet. Dark social 20 years ago. Someone could uh, if someone liked or disliked a product, they could tell the three people at the, the Little League game. Yep. Otherwise known as word of mouth. Dark social today can happen at scale through the maturity of the internet, through social networks, content platforms, private communities, third-party events, traditional word of mouth, and other forms uh, other forms of communication that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't 
don't create intent data is basically the the full definition. And so the difference here is that there's a lot of other it's it still kind of is in the what most people would consider the category of word of mouth, but it acts very differently when instead of me having text you to tell something, I can put it on Twitter and then a million people see it or a hundred thousand people see it or even fifty people see it. There's so much more scale to it and so much more awareness that didn't exist. Um, and so, and another thing that's happening is that consumers over time, they always have trusted their peers in making decisions more than things like affiliate blogs, vendors, and other things. So they would trust more a recommendation from their friend on what soda to buy than what's being advertised at the grocery store, for instance. And so they always have trusted their peers more, but now they know how to get to the people that have the information to decide what to buy. And so they know how to, someone could shoot me a DM and ask me, Hey, what type of thing should I buy for this? And I'm going to give them an answer. And the company that I recommend will never know that it came from me. And will think that it was because of their SEO strategy of why they got that customer. And so there's a huge mismatch here between how companies measure the success of marketing and revenue generation versus what's actually happening in real life. And so what they measure, they think this, the, these types of things are working. Typically, the things that are easiest to measure, SEO and SEM, email marketing, um, affiliate or review sites or other type of aggregators versus what's actually driving the impact to create the demand of why the consumer actually buys, which is word of mouth, podcasts, social networks, third-party events, things like that. And so now that we're sort of level set on the fundamental change that's happened, that there's way more scale to word of mouth. And we need to be able to figure out how to put information into the places that people use so that it gets consumed, liked, amplified, shared, discussed, all of these different things that people are doing. A couple of the strategies that I've used from the beginning is that I basically put out the information on LinkedIn that companies pay me $10,000 for a couple of hours for. So I'm basically offer whether it's in this uh, a podcast format like this. I do a lot of live events where I offer free consulting. I record the free consulting, and then I put it out on LinkedIn to be the best information that people have from someone that's credible and relevant and actually is in the work with 200 companies. So I know what I'm talking about. Um, and so the business that I built underneath it allows me to get all the insights from all the companies that we work with. And then be able to bubble up those insights to what's happening at the macro level or the industry level or the buyer level, and then communicate to the market what are the what are the patterns and things that I'm seeing that other people don't see because they just don't have the same vantage point as me. So I'll tell you what, man, that actually parallels a lot about a, a lot along the lines of how I'm pushing Florida Risk forward, and that is, you know, I agree wholeheartedly. I think benchmarking and keeping up with the Joneses and FOMO is a huge thing. Maybe not necessarily the angle you were going, but where where I'm heading with that is I want to I don't want to just be able to take a prospect and benchmark them against a national average. That I mean that's a huge data set. It it it's credible, I'm sure, but what I want to be able to do is take that same data, calculate the performance and results from the people that are in our our agency you know, capture where were they when we started with them? Where are they at three years? Where are they at five years? And then benchmark a new prospect against that. 
because mm-hmm. I think it captures people attention more. Just the same. If I, I mean, I've got all the loss data on my book of business. I've got the premium volume. I can calculate loss ratios and everything else. Just like you can take marketing data and use that for your insights. I think that it makes it a much more powerful conversation when you're going to someone who's paying too much for their insurance, but it's due to the risk profile of the account or the loss performance. And you can show them in black and white data and say, but it's okay. I had a lot of people come to us that were like this. And in fact, the average client who came to us was worse than you are right now. Here's where they were after a year, three year, five years. It makes it really easy to have the conversation and close the deal, honestly. Mm-hmm. 100%. Chris, for, for dark social and, and these channels that are somewhat untrackable, is it is self-reported attribution still the best way to get a gauge on that? Or is it kind of just something that you have to say, hey, we started this podcast a year ago and we we can't really track people that are coming from there, but we just look back and our business is just a lot bigger. So uh, the insight for me here, and I'll tell a little bit of a story so that people will get this, is that there's there's plenty of ways to collect information directly from your customers so that they tell you what's working and what's not. And as B2B organizations, for whatever reason, we just don't do that. We just look at whatever software tools we have and the analytics that all the ad platforms that we run ads on and the likes that we get. And we try and look at all these metrics that platforms have aggregated and decide those are the right metrics to look at, not what our customers say to us directly. And so like in 2017, I was running this whole thing for a 30, 50, 30, $40 million medical device company. I put all the marketing things in place. I was the one pulling every single lever. When we bought ads, when we ran Google ads, when we put out content, when we posted on our website, when we wrote an SEO blog, I saw every different thing. And uh, after about 12 months of doing it, we knew that Facebook ads was working a ton because it was the only place that we increased spend and budget. And we increased spend and budget on Facebook ads to distribute content to our accounts and magically started getting way more inbound pipeline, win rates and sales cycles uh, improved, things like that. But when we look at the attribution, all it's saying is that SEO and SEM are the things that are driving the whole business. And I'm like, we haven't invested a single dollar or done anything focused on these things in close to a year. And this doesn't make any sense. And then you go out to customers and you start, you go to conferences and you hear customers, oh, we keep seeing your content on Facebook. We love that. That interview you did with Dr. Rada was amazing. You know, you just get the signals from people. And I'm like, okay, so what we're reading here back at HQ compared to what our customers are telling me every time I go and talk to them is fundamentally different. And which one are we going to believe? And it's crazy. Most B2B companies are like, our customer must not remember the right thing. That's literally what people say say as an objection when I say implement self-reported attribution. The customer probably doesn't remember what touch point. It's like, well, they remembered something. And that's more value. I just place way more value on what the customer said versus what a software tool says that that is just looking at collecting information. Um, and so I still I think self-reported attribution is a easy, simple, free thing that you could put in place and have much better insights in less than 24 hours. It took me about 10 minutes to put it on our website in 2021, and we've never looked back. Super simple. Meanwhile, a company is go out and going to buy a marketing mix modeling software product for $250,000, spend six months implementing it and get nowhere. And so it's just like, it's crazy how people look at these decisions and say, oh, self-reported attribution is, like, isn't good enough, but we're going to go and invest in these tools that have huge fundamental obvious limitations as well. In addition to that, talk, listening to what customers say, whether it's on sales calls or when you go to the conference or when you go and have dinner with somebody... 
and you just hear those insights, I get that it's not perfectly scalable and the way that people want it in a spreadsheet or a Salesforce report that tells them exactly what to do. That's not what that's not how attribution works. And we're not going backwards and it's never going to get like that. Um, and so being able to ingest qualitative information from customers, take the qualitative that you can and convert it to quantitative and help make decisions and piece things together, I think is a is a massive uh, opportunity. And I would consider a current best practice when it comes to dark social or measuring demand creation for any type of B2B business. So listen, I want to be respectful of your time, man. I know that you're busy and we're running up on an hour, but I've been sitting here not ignoring you. If you see my eyes go to my other screen, I'm literally emailing prospects for you in real time. So um, I wanted to give you a second to maybe just articulate for our audience, who is your ideal prospect? Who Who is Refine Labs best suited for? Because I've got a short list of about five or six you know, large companies in the insurance industry that I know need help. And I'm happy to make those connections, but I want you to get it out there because because of dark social, I don't know who's listening to this. There may be somebody that's an even better prospect for you that I haven't personally connected with yet. Yeah, we typically find the most success with uh, growth, what most people consider enter, uh, mid-market segment or enterprise segment companies. So that could be somewhere between 300 employees and above. Um, we work with companies like IBM and Teradata. So it's not like there's companies that are too big or too complex for us. But And we also have a ton of success with what we call single product, single market or platform software or other things. We have a couple of companies that are customers in the financial service industry. I think the, the fifth and seventh biggest insurance providers in the US are our customers for specific business units or segments as well. Um, and companies that have leaders, leadership, whether it's on the marketing team, the revenue team, the CEO, or ideally all of them that are recognizing that the way that they are doing go to market needs to shift. And the first place to shift is marketing, not sales. And so I think that there's companies that are aligned to how how the world is shifting and are looking for help. I think that we're best positioned with our unique perspective and how we deliver to help companies transform away from sort of like an outdated go-to-market to something that's a lot more modern, focuses a lot more on dark social, while not completely ignoring traditional channels that still have upside, like review sites, affiliates, SEO, SEM, and others. I would definitely tell anybody, go uh, binge Revenue Vitals. Uh, that's what I did for at least a good three months. Like it was on so much on our TV from the YouTube recordings that my <laughs> wife kept kept asking me who that was. Um, <laughs> but just kind of a, a question about that. I would not fall into probably your ideal prospect, but you're one of the one companies that there's almost like this, and I don't know how to describe it, but there's like this appeal to where if I ever became large enough where it made sense, it would it would almost be like a flex to work with Refine Labs, uh, and you kind of see this with marketers like metadata. That's one of, that I've heard of. Uh, these marketers almost having like this dream of working with them when it makes sense. Is that intentional? Is that something that you can craft, or is it just random? It's hard. It's it's hard for me to tell, but I I would bet it's because you've gotten so much professional value from the information that I've given out for free that you almost feel some level of like guilt to work work with us I, I i don't know exactly it's an interesting psychological thing to think about additionally like the some of the fastest growing best companies in the world 
work with us and get incredible results like Clary. Um, I don't know which other ones I'm allowed to name drop. So I'll, I'll stop there, but there's, you know, some of the best companies in the world, highest profile, raised a bunch of money, great valuations, great, uh, unit economics, just overall great leadership, good companies. Um, have had a lot of success working with us. And so I think that other companies would aspire to do that. And when I set out, it's crazy to see this starting to come to life. But when I started my company in 2019, I had a thousand followers on LinkedIn. There was zero companies that wanted to work with me. I had one customer that was on a hundred dollar an hour contract. And what I said is that we're going to build an, a new way to do marketing and go to market. And the biggest, best companies in the world are going to come with uh, come to us to solve these types of challenges. And now here we are four years later, the, it actually is exact, like pretty close to exactly how I drew it up. And it's cool. It's cool to look back and see that. And there's only a couple people that work at, worked at my company at that time that actually heard me say that. And they're here. They're like, you, you said this in 2019 and now we're doing it. And so I think that's cool to look back and see. Well, I do think too, man, you played the long game. It's not like you just started last week. You know, I mean, you've been building credibility for a long time and, that flywheel doesn't just catch because you decided to start. It catches because you pushed through all the times you could have quit. And I mean, that's the easy, it's the easiest thing to understand from a concept standpoint, but the hardest thing to execute because everybody says they don't have time. They don't have time. I don't have time to create content. I don't have time to do this. But when I speak publicly, one of the things that I always say is when you, when you create a piece of content and put it on the internet, you just hired a, a salesperson to get your message out 24, seven, 365. If I just did one piece of content a week, I'm going to have 52 salespeople out there at the end of the year working for me. So start there. And then if it makes sense to move to two times a week or whatever else, then you can do that. But it's a BS excuse to me, man. People put their time where their priorities are. It's never a matter of not having enough time. They just don't have their priorities right. Like you alluded to with the C-suite not participating in LinkedIn posts and everything else, that it's a company initiative. We see that all the time in our industry. Yeah. I mean, uh, to to close out here, I, I interestingly look at some of this stuff in parallels to being an athlete. I was an athlete growing up. I played college baseball. Where? In, uh, WPI. Uh, okay. Small school in New England. I was there for my education. I got to play baseball too, which is cool. But you got all these people that can play high school baseball. And then there's only a certain amount of people or whatever sport, right? Then there's only a certain amount of people that can play college. And then you got less than 1% that are actually going to make it to the MLB. And then to the show um, inside of the MLB is even less, right? And what what gets people all the way there? There's some level of internal talent, size, skill, speed, things like that. And then there's a lot of practice. And so if in, in business or in content, if you want to be in the quote unquote MLB of your industry or your income level, and you, you expect that you want to make a seven figure income and take that home and have a great brand and have a lot of people know you and think that you're going to go to practice once every two weeks and put a post on LinkedIn, it's just, you, you misalign the expectations. You would expect an athlete to practice multiple times a day if they want to be able to take home that you know, $7 million a year contract. So I think we need to start looking at that as business professionals as well. Like, and you can decide if you just want to play quote unquote, the apparel, the equivalent of college baseball for your career, then you don't have to work as hard. You don't have to practice as much. You don't need as much talent. So I think it's about trying as a content producer or as a business leader or overall professional aligning your aspirations and expectations of your career or your income or those types of things to the amount of 
quote unquote practice that you actually do. Uh, and there's a lot of people that want to make a million dollars and don't want to do any work. And like I mentioned, yeah. there are moments in time when that stuff can happen, like crypto or Amazon FBA. But for the most part, those things don't exist. So aligning. Yeah, I'll never forget, man. I showed up to I showed up to practice for the first time fall my freshman year. And I remember calling my parents in that that time. We didn't we didn't even have phones in our rooms. I had to walk to a payphone in the main part of the of the dorms to call them. And I said, this is a different animal because I was one of the best, if not the best where I came from. And now I'm on a team where everybody was the best where they came from. And the rest of your life, that's what happens. Right. You, you get you go and play in the minor leagues. They're that much better, that much better, that much better. And it's how you respond to it. So really appreciate your time today, Chris. How do they get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to find Refine Labs other than you know go on LinkedIn and consume as much content yeah. as they can? RefineLabs.com. You can follow me on uh, LinkedIn or TikTok at ChrisWalker171. And be sure to check out the B2B Revenue Vitals podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other platform. I got to run to a live event, so I'm going to jump off right now. I'm, I'm Get it, man. already, but super appreciate being here. Let's catch up again soon. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Take care, brother. See you See soon. You. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.